Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. On today's New Statesman podcast, we're joined by a very special guest, Gordon Brown, to discuss his latest piece for the New Statesman, which reimagines the structure of the United Kingdom. We're delighted to be joined by the former Labour Prime Minister and Chancellor, Gordon Brown. Thanks so much for joining us today. Now, in this week's issue of the New Statesman, you've written a fascinating piece, essentially reimagining the structure of the United Kingdom. And your vision came just in time in a week when Boris Johnson reportedly called devolution in Scotland a disaster and Tony Blair's biggest mistake. I wanted to ask you, first of all, what you made of those comments, because you write yourself in the piece that it was naive not to anticipate that devolution could create a megaphone for intensifying resentment. Yeah, but that doesn't make devolution wrong. First of all, it's good to be able to do this piece with the, with the New Statesman and for this uh, broadcast. Thank you very much for it. I don't think Boris Johnson gets it. I don't think he realises that people are totally fed up. They're fed up with the way things are done. They're fed up with the conflicting briefings. They're fed up with the contradictory advice. They're fed up with the U-turns. And they're fed up with the way he's managing this crisis. But it reveals something far deeper about what's happening to Britain. We've got um, regional mayors, metro mayors. We've got the mayor of London. We've got the first ministers of Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. And for whatever reason, the United Kingdom at the centre doesn't really seem to take into account that we're a multinational country with diverse regions, and they're still trying to run Britain as if it's a centralised unitary state. And that's got to change. And so what I'm putting forward is proposals in four areas about how we can actually make Britain work better and find a way in which people can cooperate rather than be in permanent uh, conflict and also find a basis on which uh, people can agree that there are certain common values, certain common uh, principles that we hold in common, and that while there's bound to be diversity, and people may want in different areas to go their own ways on particular areas of policy, there's sufficient common ground for the United Kingdom to be able to hold together. In your essay, you expand on on those four pillars for redistributing power in the UK. For readers and listeners who haven't seen the essay yet, would you mind briefly outlining those four areas that you're calling for change in? Yeah, well, I'm looking at what's wrong and what's got to be sorted out. And I'm actually talking, first of all, about a process about how we can actually get people talking 
about not abstract theories of the constitution that would interest lawyers, but how actually we deal with the practical problems we've, we've been facing. How do you manage public health and disease control? What is the balance between what happens locally and what happens nationally? How do you manage employment and industry? Because there is a huge crisis, a million young people unemployed, millions of people going to be looking for jobs, and, and how the different regions and different nations work with the centre to get the right policies is an issue. And of course, we've got to look at how we manage issues of fairness, because the allocation of resources across the United Kingdom is not fair at the moment, and it's got to be done. So the first step pillar is making sure the allocation of resources across the United Kingdom are as fair as possible. And so you need some needs-based formula for making sure that there's proper provision, particularly in the north, the northeast, the Midlands, Yorkshire, where resources are not allocated to any principle at the moment at all. It's very much um, the expediency that dominates. The second area is uh, devolution itself, the powers, as well as therefore the resources that, that different regions and nations have. You've got metro mayors with titles, but not necessarily many powers. You've got expectations that cannot be uh, met. And we've got a devolution mindset that is wrong in the, at the centre, where it's sort of de devolve and forget, give them the title, give them this and that, and then forget. We've got to find a basis on which uh, the powers allocated to the regions and nations are the right ones and can make sense of what the problems are we've got to solve. And the third area is cooperation. You, you can't hold the United Kingdom together unless there is a basis on which people can cooperate. And there is actually no institutional mechanism at the moment that works. There used to be joint ministerial committees between Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland and um, London, and these have um, broken down. There's no formal committee or forum of the regions or nations and regions that actually meets. So during this pandemic, it's all been ad hoc. And to be honest, I don't think the mayors in particular feel that all local council leaders feel that there's been much consultation. And the Welsh First Minister, you may remember, was complaining that Boris Johnson wouldn't even reply to, to letters. And then the final pillar is the values. I mean, what we actually believe in common. I was very much influenced by Marcus Rashford in the last few weeks, because on one occasion he said, this makes me proud to be British. And then on another occasion, he said, when the government failed to act, I feel ashamed to be British. And I think we've got to work out what it is that brings us together. And I think uh, it's uh, empathy, solidarity, a willingness to cooperate, a willingness to take reciprocal actions to help each other. If you help me, I'll help you. And it's uh, based on values that we believe in a fairer country, we believe in a socially responsible country, and we believe in a country where we get the right balance between the liberties people have and the equality that, that we need to make this um, society work in a cohesive and fair way. You touched a bit there about what you see as British values. And one of the things you write in the piece is that you believe you failed after becoming prime minister to start a debate about what it means to be British. And you urge today's leaders to try again. How would you go about it differently today you know, if you were sitting in Downing Street right now trying to start that argument again? Well, I... Um tried to bring people together, and the, the Conservative Party at that time had no interest in doing that. I also tried to bring the churches and the faith groups into a debate that I thought we could run in the different uh, regions, the different cities, you know, starting off with, say, Liverpool, which had this history of ec ecumenical activity, and uh, found on a non-political basis what people felt brought them together. You know, I, I quote in the New Statesman article a survey that was done in Scotland, which, of course, is, is the country that seems most likely to break from the United Kingdom. 
but more than 60% of people in Scotland feel they, ha- they share the same values as the people of the rest of the United Kingdom. More than 75% want to cooperate rather than have conflict with the rest of the United Kingdom. So while you may have one opinion poll saying people want independence, you've got another set of opinion polls that say that people actually want to cooperate. And they feel, particularly in Scotland, in relation to the North and the Northwest and the Midlands, they've got an affinity with them. So I would work through citizens' assemblies. I think they were proven in Ireland and elsewhere to be effective, not just in dealing with difficult issues, but in bringing people together. In Ireland's case, it was an abortion. In other countries, they've had assemblies where people have talked about other important issues that affect their country, and they've been proved to be quite effective. So I would bring people together in different localities, regions, and say, look, if you were setting down what we needed to do as a result of this pandemic and as a result of the recession that we're now having to deal with, what do you think are the the common uh, policies, the common ideas that we have got to develop? How would you like to see things managed and how would you like to see things done? And more importantly, do you think we share the same views that, for example, everybody in any part of the United Kingdom, no matter the different systems of administration that exist at the moment, everybody has the right to be able to say, if I'm ill, I can go to a hospital in any part of the United Kingdom. If I'm sick, unemployed, or if I'm disabled, and no matter what part of the United Kingdom I'm in, I will get a standard of treatment that is fair and is equitable. And I think we've got to think about the common rights of citizenship, not just economic and social rights, but obviously political and civil rights that everybody should should have. And we ought to write that down and make sure that we show that there is a common mission. Another poll from Scotland that you mention in your piece is that there have been a number of recent surveys that find 50% want Scotland to be independent. And I was just wondering what you think Scottish Labour's approach should be to that appetite. Well, what, what I'm actually saying in this, this, this article is that the dissatisfaction that is obvious in Scotland, people don't believe the UK government gets it, they are fed up with the way things are managed, is also similar to the dissatisfaction that we're seeing in Wales and in the regions of England. People feel that they are invisible to this government. People feel that they're not recognised as first-class citizens. People feel they're not uh, listened to. They feel forgotten. They feel pushed out, left out, losing out. And so I don't really think that you can say that there is simply a Scottish problem. I think all nations and regions of the United Kingdom, as we have seen in this pandemic, have got the same set of frustrations, the same desire for change, the same wish that things were being done better, the same need, I think, to build a far better relationship between the centre, if you like, the UK government and and the regions and the nations. So I think, uh, yes, there is dissatisfaction in Scotland. But yes, I think we've got to understand that this is a UK-wide problem. Of course, many of the features of this are actually Western problems. You can already see Uh, what happened in America, that although Joe Biden won the presidential election, large numbers of people who you might call the white working class in the Rust Belt areas in America were still voting for Trump and believed in this populist nationalist uh, message, which is, in my view, something that we've got to counteract. You're very keen to to emphasise that this is a a UK-wide problem, and as as you just said, a Western problem. But I suppose, given that your essay is really preoccupied with the future of the Union, 
the most immediate hurdle to clear is, of course, the 2021 May elections to the Scottish Parliament, which could, in theory, lead to a chain of events that could lead to Scottish independence. So I wonder, in that context, beyond the argument for a new constitutional settlement and the, and the broader need for a conversation about a shared British identity, as a former Prime Minister from Scotland, what role do you see Scottish Labour at the moment playing in that? Because it's in a tricky situation as a third party. What in particular is the role for Labour in Scotland? I think you've got to recognise that political mistakes have got us into this position as Scottish Labour and that you've got to get the right political analysis to be able to sort it out. I don't think Labour's problems in Scotland are inevitable. I don't think they're insoluble. I don't think that they are anything other than uh, what we should address by taking um, uh, the policy actions that are necessary. There are two issues. One is clarity on the constitutional issue, because you know people immediately ask you, if you're, if you're doing an interview in Scotland or anywhere else, if it's about Scotland, where do you stand on the, the position of Scotland's relationship with the rest of the UK? So you've got to be clear on that. And I'm very clear what we need to do. I've always supported devolution. I think Boris Johnson is completely mistaken in believing that that's the problem. I mean, in a week when number 10 has proved to be completely dysfunctional and the centre is falling apart, it's a bit much to say that devolution is the problem and that somehow the centre has is, uh, is, is, is got all the answers. So on devolution, I'm pretty clear that we've got to support it. We've got in some cases to extend it. And we've got to find a basis in which cooperation can actually work to everybody's advantage in the UK. But on social policy, I mean, let's let's be absolutely honest about what's happening in, in, in Scotland. The schools are not working. Entry to universities uh, amongst uh, working class students has, has not improved in any substantial way. The health service uh, has a backlog of problems, partly because of the virus, but also partly because of the mismanagement of it by the Scottish uh, government. Youth unemployment is very high in Scotland, is going to be higher, and I don't see any policy on the part of the SNP to deal with that. And let's be honest, what the SNP are trying to prove all the time is the case for independence. I mean, every issue is set in their terms in what will further the case for independence. I'm interested in social justice. I'm interested in what furthers the needs, in meeting the needs of the Scottish people. And therefore, you have to have a far more radical social policy and indeed an economic policy uh, where you have the powers than the SNP have at the moment. And uh, Labour is the social justice party in Scotland, and it's got to be the social justice party in Scotland, as well as the party of solidarity with the rest of the United Kingdom. In your piece, you write specifically about the pandemic and how it has brutally exposed an inflexible and insensitive centre. And I just wondered how you feel, you know, watching the extraordinary situation the government is trying to steer the country through now, How do you feel as a former prime minister who was also at the helm of a nation facing a global crisis? I mean, do you watch Boris Johnson in those press briefings and feel any sympathy? Do you ever put yourself in his shoes? Well, you've got to feel sympathy for a prime minister who's been ill during the crisis, who's now holed up in Downing Street and unable to do the things he he wants, wants to do. But I mean, there's two basic lessons about leadership that you've got to take into account when you face a crisis. The first is you've got to get to the root of the problem quickly. And to be honest, we we failed to do that. We failed to understand that in the absence of a vaccine, you had to test, test and test. It was your first line of defense against this virus, because until you knew where the problem lay, you couldn't begin to solve it. So while we were dealing with a financial crisis where the problem was the banks and the financial system, 
he's dealing with an economic and health crisis where the root of it is obviously solving the medical problems that we face. And in the absence of a vaccine, which hopefully we'll have in the next few months, the one thing you had to do was to test, test and test. And, and we, we didn't do that. And we were way behind other countries. The second thing you've got to do if you're a leader, and I found this very important as a lesson that you had to learn very quickly, is you've got to be two steps ahead of events. You cannot be behind the curve. If you're behind the curve, then you've made none of the plans that are necessary for dealing with what you know is almost inevitably to come next. And so they haven't planned for the high unemployment levels that we're going to have in the next year, particularly at a million people who are young, under 25, who haven't got jobs. Because here it cannot just be about job protection, it's got to be about job creation. And in the absence of a private sector that's going to be able to create jobs because they're laying off people, you've got to find another way of doing that. He hasn't planned for the fact that thousands of businesses are zombie businesses and they may go under the minute the loans have to be repaid. If you want to keep good, viable businesses in existence, you're going to have to have some new way of dealing with that. You've got to have some sort of equity for loan scheme that, that gives them capital with probably the government or the regions being able to benefit from their success by taking shares in them. And so you've got to be two steps ahead. And as far as the economic side of this, I mean, this is a global economic crisis. I mean, there is no planning that I see in any part of the world at the moment for the coordination of fiscal and monetary policy that you need if you're going to have a recovery. I mean, monetary policy can take you so far, so you can have quantitative easing, you can cut interest rates where interest rates are, are able to be cut. But if you're going to have a recovery, fiscal policy is where the, where the action is. I mean, if the last 10 years they allowed the only game in town to be central banks doing things, fiscal policy is where you're at. And, you're at, and you've, got to, you've got to find a way of dealing with that problem by coordinated action, which we found in 2009 had twice the impact if it was done together working with other countries than if we'd done it on our own. Now, of course, we lost the argument after 2009. We went into austerity. People didn't take our advice that you had to run a deficit for a period of time in order to get back to growth. We never got back to growth. And this is the danger that we face in this recession, that because uh, we're not focused on how we get back to growth after we can get through the pandemic itself, and we don't have the measures in place, we will not have a strong recovery. And so you've got to be two steps ahead of events. And that's where I think the government have fallen down. Just about every day I see them dealing with yesterday's newspaper stories and the morning's television coverage and not able to deal with the bigger issues that lie ahead of them. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
in addition to the kind of coronavirus crisis, the, the Labour Party has an ongoing crisis in terms of its handling of anti-Semitism. In 2010, yeah, the Labour Party got 31% of the Jewish vote. In 2019, it got 6%. How did you feel you know, seeing the EHRCE report come out? And have you read it? And, and what do you think about it? Yeah, it's got to be implemented. I mean, that's, that's the key. This is a report that is a serious piece of work that is looks at the instances of anti-Semitism that suggests remedies, uh, mainly a legal report that has been done. And you can't ignore it. You've got to take it seriously. And that's what Keir Starmer wants, wants to do. So um, I think that uh, it's got to be implemented. And the sooner it's implemented, the better. Do you think it was a mistake on Keir Starmer's part to press ahead with disciplinary processes against Jeremy Corbyn before the report had been implemented? I'm very clear about this, that there can be no ifs, no buts, no no qualifications, that we cannot um, have any conditional clauses attached to what is an apology and what is a clear statement of what we've got to do. And so um, I I think uh, Jeremy uh, Corbyn, who who I'm sure did not want ever to be in this position, but is in this position, he's got to admit he got it wrong and he's got to accept that he has to apologise. Back to the article, one of the things you talk about a lot is the creation of of new bodies and more money, but not necessarily more powers. Is that because you've spoken about that elsewhere, or do you now feel that the devolution settlement post the Smith Commission is about right? I, I wasn't really implying that. I do feel you've got to look at the allocation of powers as well as the allocation of resources. But But the issues that I think have been the bigger ones that have been missing are, as I said, the financial ones, but also how you actually find a basis for cooperation. When you quoted me at the beginning of saying that that we were naive to think that um, creating a devolved assembly or parliament or or body could not be a a platform for people intensifying their their dissatisfaction and their, in the case of Scotland, their desire for independence. I think what we were believing was that people would want to work together that in the interests of the people of Scotland or in the people of Wales or Northern Ireland and even in the interests of the regions when you create these authorities like in London that there would be a general desire to say let's put aside our differences so that we can find a basis on which in the interests of the people we represent we can do things together and you know in Australia and Canada and other countries there are forums that are part of the constitution that bring the different parts of the country together in, in what is uh, effectively uh, you know, a coordination of the regions and, and, and nations. Now, we don't have that in Britain, and therefore we've got to create what I think is a decision-making forum of the regions and nations. So in my article, I, I'm not um, suggesting that we shouldn't look at the, the powers, because we've got to, in certain instances, that the virus has revealed some of the weaknesses that we've got to we've got to solve. But I wanted to emphasize that it's not simply enough to talk of devolution in terms of the powers you have. You've got to have the resources to be able to use the powers. And you've also got to have a mechanism by which you can resolve issues of difficulty, but also find a way to work together, like on climate change, where it's far better that we have a a, a common policy that can be agreed between all four nations. I mean, I picked up the newspapers today and I said, there's an opinion poll saying that 70% or so of the people of the rest of the United Kingdom, and then certainly a majority of people in Scotland, want there to be common rules governing Christmas so, so that people can feel confident about traveling to different places to see relatives. And so where there's a case for cooperation, you've got to find a mechanism by which you can agree. Just one last question. 
You write about the Northern Powerhouse um, Initiative in, in your piece and you sort of outline the gap between its intentions or its rhetoric and, and its actual reality. I wonder if you think that the famous levelling up agenda that Boris Johnson promised in the election campaign will go the same way. Well, I think the problem is that all these promises were made about a northern powerhouse, but the resources were never put behind them. And I think the problem about levelling up is that it's going to become levelling down unless people are prepared to face up to the decisions that need to be made. And you need to have resources on transport and infrastructure that to a large extent have been spent in, in a disproportionate way in other parts of the country spent in, in the north, in the case of England, and in, and in some of the nations as well. So you've got, if you want a levelling up agenda, to face up to the fact you've got to make decisions about the allocation of resources. And to be honest, I think levelling up was a bit of rhetoric that was invented uh, to get uh, through a difficult uh, situation that the Conservative Party faced in convincing people they were serious about doing something about the north. And I think they've got to back that up with, um, with, with the resources that are needed. If you look at this as a whole, what I'm really saying, the United Kingdom is a multinational country, and we think of it only as a unitary state. It's got diverse regions as well as nations, and uh, we have thought too much in terms of centralization. Now, when we've got the chance to review the experience of uh, COVID, where, to be honest, the different parts of the United Kingdom have not worked well together, and that's clear there's been a standoff, we've got to look at how you allocate resources, what the policy priorities are for the next stage of devolution, how you can end this mindset where you, the centre still thinks as if nothing has changed, how you devise the cooperation and work through the cooperative mechanisms that are necessary for people to accept that even although they disagree on certain things, they've got to work together in the interests of their, their own populations. And then are there sufficiently strong values that underpin us that we can build on that for the, for the future? And I think people do want to cooperate and they want their politicians and leaders to cooperate. I think people do see there is common ground and we're not just talking about deference to ancient monuments. We're talking about uh, live considerations about fairness and how we share the same ideas about fairness. And I think we've got to build on that. But the sooner we recognize that this is a problem that's got to be dealt with, the better. I mean, I do say that the danger, the danger, because I don't want it to happen, is that the United Kingdom goes the way of the British Empire. And that is something that we have got to avoid by taking action now. And the time for decision making is now so that we avoid that kind of outcome. Thank you so much for your time, Gordon Brown. And I encourage all of our listeners to pick up an issue of this week's magazine to read your piece, Reimagining the United Kingdom. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues, Stephen Bush and Alva Ray, and our special guest, Gordon Brown. We're produced by Nick Hilton, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening.
Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.